the Klan consistently used the language of 100% Americanism or pure Americans to imply that there were all kinds of people in the country who were really not Americans. As a historian of the 19th and 20th centuries, Linda Gordon has studied a wide array of social trends, from the rise of birth control activism to the impacts of welfare and violence upon American families. Two of her books, The Great Arizona Orphan Abduction and Dorothea Lange, A Life Beyond Limits, have won the prestigious Bancroft Prize for the best book in American history. Gordon was recently at the American Academy as a Marcus Burek Distinguished Visitor to discuss her latest book, The Second Coming of the KKK. In it, Gordon goes beyond the more well-known terrorism of the KKK in the South to show just how active the Klan was in northern states like Oregon, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts in the first half of the 20th century. There, the primary methods employed by the Klan did not rely on violence, but rather on propaganda and electoral activity, both entirely legal activities for furthering their racist agenda. In this episode of Beyond the Lecture, Gordon suggests that some of the anti-immigrant sentiment in contemporary political discourse has its roots in the Klan of the 1920s. So most of our listeners will be familiar with this now infamous statement. Parents, if you're watching with children, uh, you might want to mute for the next 35 seconds. When talk turned to Haiti and countries in Africa at that meeting, he apparently said, this is a quote, why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here? But according to Gordon, this kind of thinking by government officials has a long history in the United States, and much of it can be traced to the Ku Klux Klan. One of the first times race played a role in actual immigration legislation was in 1924, when a law was passed to restrict the influx of Asian immigrants, pushed in part by Klan-affiliated Congress members. The 1924 legislation uh, created a set of quotas uh, for every national and ethnic group, and those quotas were designed, they were based on the 1890 census, before the really large immigration had started to come in. And the, the idea was, or the claim, was we want to keep the proportion of different groups in America just as it had been in 1890, when there was still a great majority of a Protestant population. And so these quotas were wildly discriminatory. If you put together just the United Kingdom and the German quotas, those uh, numbers in themselves accounted for 70%, 70% of all the immigration that was allowed. Um, an example of the other extreme is that the quota was 1,100 for the whole of the continent of Africa. The central figure in getting this legislation passed was a congressman and known Klan member named Albert Johnson. Albert Johnson is a guy who went up through various state offices to becoming a U.S. congressperson and then becoming the head of the House of Representatives Immigration Committee, a very, very powerful post. Um, he um, certainly was not the only Klan sympathizer in the Congress. He had many allies, and but he was the shepherd 
the man primarily responsible for this bill that became law in 1924, which was the first time that we had across the board federal immigration restriction. Uh, he was accustomed to it because on the West Coast, there were already targeted restrictions against Asians. But 19, before 1924, there was no restriction to people coming into the East Coast, although they were checked for diseases, etc. But uh, basically anyone could come. Albert Johnson was uh, at the really the, the most extreme end of that anti-Asian sentiment. Um, and he literally boasted about the fact that in 1907, he had participated in a vigilante action that drove all the Asians out of the town of Bellingham, Washington, which is a, not a massive town, but it's a pretty significant size place. And what's significant here is that um, he was proud of this, and there were many, many clanspeople involved in that kind of action. But before we go any further into the ways in which the Klan affected American politics, it's helpful at this point to get an understanding of just how the organization has functioned over time. Now on the 20th century, the Ku Klux Klan, from its murky beginnings after the Civil War to wide acceptance in the 1920s. Governors it changed significantly of over its 150-year history. Uh, we speak uh, historically about the Klan having four comings or four appearances. The first started immediately after the American Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves. It began when six former Confederate soldiers from the town of Pulaski, Tennessee, got together to form a social club. And its purpose was to intimidate the entire black population and to maintain uh, the subordination of that population so that they would be forced into providing a very cheap labor force. Clan number two uh, was developed in the 1920 in the northern states. The third clan arose after the civil rights movement. On Monday, May 17, 1954, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down its landmark Brown versus Board of Education decision. Um, the white citizens' councils and that plan devoted themselves very particularly to fighting integration and particularly the integration of the schools. Then the fourth clan, uh, which is what we have today, um, is really part of a broader movement that is often called white nationalism. It's sometimes called the alt-right, as in alternative right. Today, the actual organizational Ku Klux Klan is but one small group among many, many white nationalist groups. Nevertheless, they all have uh, what I call, uh, in my book and elsewhere, clannish values. They are entirely in sync with the Klan. Gordon's work focuses on the second coming of the Klan in the 1920s. In this phase, the Klan enjoyed great popularity in northern states. In the 1920s, the Klan was able to claim anywhere from four to six million members, and that, on top of that, was a women's Klan that had about one and a half million members. They ran candidates 
openly as Klansmen. They elected 11 governors, uh, something like 45 senators or congresspeople, and absolutely uncounted numbers of state, county, municipal officials. Even President Warren Harding was a member, having been sworn into the Klan in the Green Room of the White House. What's most remarkable about this era in the Klan's history is that its primary tactics did not involve violence. Their weapons of choice were legal and generally involved the spread of propaganda, or as we might refer to it today, fake news. Our story hired from the very beginning a public relations firm. And to the best of my knowledge, it is the first time when a mass social movement used that kind of PR. It's commonplace today, but it was absolutely new in 1920. And it probably shows the lack of a business sense on the part of the first leader of the 1920 clan, William Simmons. He offered them 80% of everything they took in from initiation fees or dues. This is amazing. And so he made millions off of this. His profit motive starts sparking to figure out a way to increase production. In fact, the clan, that clan was incorporated as a for-profit corporation. And it charged a lot of money. Uh, you had to pay $10 as an initiation fee, which today is worth over $120. You had to pay regular dues, which added up uh, often to the equivalent of uh, to $25 a year, which would be worth more than, you know, more than twice $120. And they got into the business of selling all sorts of memorabilia to their members. Now, that started with the robes, uh, which they manufactured for $2.50 a piece and sold for $6.50 a piece. We know that because we've seen their uh, their um, financial records. But they also manufactured little trinkets, knives engrossed with the clan uh, label. You could give your wife jewelry that was engraved with the clan label, rings, uh, all kinds of things. And uh, the money was just flowing. Another remarkable aspect of this PR firm is the fact that it was led by a woman, Elizabeth Tyler, who saw the clan as a vessel for her conception of conservative feminism. Elizabeth Tyler is uh, uh, surprising in some ways. And one of the most surprising things about her is that she was not at all what uh, conventional people would say was a respectable woman. She was living with a guy she was not married to. Uh, in fact, at one point, they were literally caught and charged with fornication, which was uh, a crime at the time. Um, many of her contemporaries s sort of saw the, the PR firm as headed by her partner. And that's interesting because it involves just the assumption that if there's a man involved, the man has to be in charge. When in fact, she was the brain, she was incredibly ambitious, and was able to achieve the success despite completely flouting the norms for womanly behavior. Eventually, the large sums of money flowing into the Klan and the PR firm led to massive corruption, which ultimately ushered in the demise of the 1920s incarnation of the organization. 
By the early 1950s, there were few reports of Klan activity, and it looked as though the Ku Klux Klan had disappeared. Since at least the civil rights movement, the Klan has lost its status as a legitimate political entity. But according to Gordon, a range of new organizations that comprise what is known as the alt-right have fulfilled similar functions. These organizations continue to use many of the tactics of the Klan. One of the tactics which I think they learned partly from the PR firm, and it's so basic, but it is still used today, and that's the tactic of repetition. You make a claim that is, it might be something that's just invented out of whole cloth. For example, uh, leaders of the Klan were saying that one of the reasons the country was in danger is that the police forces had been taken over by Catholics. And the imperial wizard once claimed that 90% of American police were Catholics. This is completely bizarre, but you can repeat it, and you repeat it, and you repeat it. And so first it's announced in some speech, then it's announced in a newspaper, then it's picked up by a newspaper. And when it's around another times, you say, oh, well, it must have been verified. It must have been there because everybody is using that figure. You will not replace us! You don't create anger out of nothing. You create anger by making people really fearful that something bad is happening. Um, and behind that is the use of conspiracy theories. In fact, you know, in some ways, all of anti-Catholicism was one big conspiracy theory. All of anti-Semitism was one big conspiracy theory because it's in both cases based on these claims that this is a group of people who in secret are plotting against sometimes just American values, but sometimes more seriously, literally plotting against the government. Uh, about the Catholics, they literally claimed that the Pope was at the head of a conspiracy to transform the United States into the United States of Catholic America, in which Protestants would be absolutely subordinated. Uh, the use of fear was certainly not new, um, because, for example, the anti-Semitism is absolutely as old as, as Jews have existed, as recorded history. And, uh, in fact, the just as I said about anti-Catholicism, anti-Semitism is, in a way, one big conspiracy about a group of people who are using, in this case, uh, economic power to run the world, and that they are behind things. But, you know, we are seeing that kind of claim today. Uh, for example, there have been widespread claims that it was the Jews who were behind the 9-11 attacks. Um, that it is the Jews who are encouraging uh, this immigration, even though they're talking about immigration primarily from Spanish-speaking countries. Um, the the 1940-24 legislation was, uh, in you know, enacted and lasted until 1965. And in 1965, when there was a kind of repeal and revision of that legislation, it was very, very common that opponents claimed that this was a Jewish plot to get rid of 
the immigration restriction. Gordon says that there are some troubling differences between the 1920s Klan and the contemporary alt-right, which may make them an even more destructive social force. In the 1920s, the Klan was one central organization. It had a good bit of autonomy for the chapters, but it had its rule books nationally, it had its books of ideology nationally. We don't have that today. Um, and the, the white nationalist groups, as they are called, they are really all independent. And, um, and they have another, I think, demographic difference from the white citizens' councils or the earlier clans, and that is that I believe that they're disproportionately young. Um, one of the things we, we tend to see historically, not just about this, but about all kinds of uh, violent movements, is that as men get older, as they become fathers, as they have families to support, they're a little bit less likely to engage in violence. And that's true of criminality as well as political violence, that most violent crime is done by men under 30, perhaps. I don't have an exact figure. Uh, that was not true of the Klan. The Klan was absolutely middle-aged, middle-class movement. It was, as I mentioned before, it was a movement for families. It was completely respectable. But there's one continuity uh, which I think is particularly dangerous, and that is the uh, connections between these groups and the police. The Grand Dragon, who oversees the Florida chapter and a newer member dressed in the white hood, agreed to sit down with us, faces covered. Why do you want your face covered here? Uh, because I care about my job. They claim to be part of an invisible empire. Uh, in the 1920s clan, one of the things we know is that um, police officers were, the, were proportionally the largest occupational group in the Klan. And we have testimony from many chiefs of police saying, oh, my police force is truly Klanified, saying it often very proudly. This represents a serious problem because in some cases it means you really cannot rely on the police to keep the peace. We have police officers, paramedics, Judges, you know, they're everywhere. And they say they're 1,000 members strong and growing. Yet Gordon still believes that there's reason for hope. I really believe that uh, steadily more and more Americans are alienated by Trump uh, bigotry. CNN can now project that Democrats will win the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, James. I think that there is a real rise of an electoral pushback against Trump. So I do think there's cause for hope, but, you know, it doesn't mean uh, we can take anything for granted. You've been listening to an interview with historian Linda Gordon at the American Academy in Berlin. You can read more about Gordon's research in her book, The Second Coming of the KKK, The Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s and the American Political Tradition. You can listen to more of our Beyond the Lecture series interviews on our website, americanacademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and Twitter. 
Our show today was produced by Tony Andrews. I'm your host, RJ McGill. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.